Hello and welcome. You're listening to Connected and Ready, an ongoing conversation about innovation, resilience and our capacity to succeed, brought to you by Microsoft. I'm Gemma Milne. I'm a technology journalist and author, and I'm going to be exploring trends around how companies are adapting to a disrupted world and preparing for tomorrow. We're going to speak to the innovators who are bringing products, operations and people together in new ways. Today, I'm chatting to John Cerrone, Principal and Director of Virtual Design and Construction at Shop Architects, about how digital transformation is making architecture more creative and efficient. We chat about how Shop Architects' innovative approach to process drives greater collaboration, how technology can free architects to spend more time on the why as opposed to the how of the build, and what tools like AR and VR bring to these huge, complex projects. John, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I wonder if you could start by just giving us a little bit of an introduction to who you are. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm John Cerrone. I'm a principal at Shop Architects. I've been here since 2008 and uh, focus on a lot of the digital technologies for the design and delivery of our projects. So when did you first start to you know, question the typical ways of working as an architect and, and maybe started to see more innovative use of technology as a solution to you know, break away from the status quo? Yeah, you know, studying architecture, you get your first taste of 3D modeling, of digital modeling. And I just remember I had a, you know, I took an extracurricular course in 3D modeling and something clicked, you know, oh, you can do this. I can do the work and, and, and build the project here and then create as many representations as needed. You know, that to me was, was it. I wasn't uh, well-versed in, you know, how architecture was practiced or even other industries. It was just, this is the way to work through the digital model. And, you know, from there, every project I did in, in undergraduate school was in model. It was in, in 3D form. Um, and then when I worked between undergraduate and graduate school, I was the de facto 3D person in the firm where I was working in Cleveland. From that, it's, oh, we can use this, we can use the model to help describe first the construction documents, but then really to fabricate it, um, that process of sitting in a trailer with contractors and, and spinning the model around and describing to them how to pull measurements, pull the information that they need from the 3D file. It was natural, uh, it was effective, you know, they got it. And then going back to grad school, that was it. You just kind of doubled down in digital process and all sorts of software, simulation tools, just kind of as many tools as you can expose yourself to in this investigation of process, what works, what doesn't, try everything, distill the parts that are, are effective, and the intuition or the, the feeling to sort of challenge how things work was inherent. And leaving school, you find a firm like Shop. You know, it's, it's sort of this unique way of looking and, and investigating architecture and you know, you kind of can't believe that there's a firm that is as complementary to that approach. I mean, it's in the DNA of the firm. So how architecture is practiced is, is one of the core DNA threads of the office. And this pursuit of the most efficient way to design and communicate that design to get it built, it was just the perfect complement to my area of interest and skill set. Yeah, so let's just dive straight into that. So, you know, shops processes is seen as a more, shall we say, unconventional approach to design, you know, using more of an industrial mindset. Talk us through the process and what that means in terms of closing the gap between inspiration and final design. Yeah, I think it's interesting because there's a diverse set of backgrounds that constitute shop, Um, you know, finance majors, engineering majors, art history majors, 
the founding partners all came from different backgrounds. And I think the idea that there's a way to deliver architecture, you know, this is the way you draw the plan, you draw the elevation, you cut through and create the drawings needed to explain to people. That was never the way to work. You never take process for granted. There's an inherent infatuation with other industry. So when you walk into our office, there's model airplanes on the walls, there's modeled cars and boats. There's a huge presence of of industry, of other industry. And the firm was born at the time where a big documentary about the Boeing 777 and how the 3D model was used to leverage complex data sets. How do you coordinate all these systems in one federated environment? How is everything checked? And I think when the partners formed the firm, it was right when computers were hitting the studio floors, architectural studio floors. And a lot of design study was formal and, and you know, kind of creating shapes, creating renderings and imagery of those. And when you combine the digital tool of form creation with that sort of parallel interest and, and understanding of other industry and how they're leveraging it, not to, to visualize the challenge, but to execute. Um, it was literally shop was born saying, oh, this is how we're going to do architecture. We're going to model it once and we're going to generate the information and instructions for making from these models. And I think there was a, a rude awakening right in the beginning of, of, you know, this is the expectation and it's not how it traditionally works. And that core instinct of that pursuit of the right way to do it has been the mantra and, and that's at the center of everything shop does. I think there's a very clear understanding or vision for how this industry could work and our leveraging of technologies is in the pursuit of, of defining that. So you mentioned you have this inherent uh, infatuation with other industries. In fact, the whole of Shop Architects does, um, it sounds like, with the pictures on the wall and whatnot. What is it that inspires you and the team about these other industries? It's many things. I mean, the planes, it, there's a beauty to these objects, right? They all look different. They all have slightly different form factors. And it's because they all fly. They're all planes, but they all perform a, a, a very specific function. So this idea, obviously, the form follows function. But the process behind these, the you know, the formed pieces and parts, the the precision at which they're put together. And I mean, obviously, they're, they're beautiful, but it's just it's an almost unfathomable amount of complexity all packaged into this digital asset. And from that complex forms, these fluid, smooth shapes and lines are stamped and cut and bolted and fit together. So it's this amazing product assembled with this incredible precision. And the idea that you look at how buildings are constructed and it feels so far off from that. But the reality is, I mean, buildings are pieces and parts. And if we can understand it in that kind of precise mentality and, and understand them as kits of assemblies and we can control the process that makes them, we believe you can assemble a building the way that you assemble an airplane or you assemble a, a beautiful automobile. So it's sort of inspirational and aspirational there, but that's, that's kind of what drives a lot of the process. Let's pretend I don't know anything about architecture at all. So what is the difference between how architecture is traditionally done versus what you guys do at Shop Architect? The actual deliverable of architecture hasn't changed a lot over many decades. Um, there's a drawing set. And from these drawings, it's divided up to the people that are going to build the building. Um, you use that to price the building. You know, this is what it's going to cost. This is how we're going to make it. 
and everything is communicated through hundreds of sheets, uh, often thousands of sheets of paper, different views, drawings of the building, pieces and portions of it with dimensions, and it's a robust instruction manual. But it's, it's communicated through two-dimensional set. The, the Empire State Building's drawing set was very thin, um, and now the instructions have become much more cumbersome. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about things like BIM and, and building information modeling and three-dimensional tools for design and coordination and how we explore and, and ideate and uh, how we investigate design. But at the end of the day, the traditional deliverable is and remains a two-dimensional document set. So the model is, is sometimes delivered, but with lots of disclaimers and caveats that it's not meant for construction, uh, meant as reference, and the drawing set is the final deliverable. Uh, I think shop has just realized that there's so much efficiency in leveraging the model. The approach that we use is, is a centralized model. It is the project, and it represents the scopes and all the trades, and it is the instruction manual. So at the end of the day, the deliverables can be tailored to the specific person or trade that needs that information. So if it's going direct to CNC, often that's just machine code, and, and you need a drawing for someone to track that or, or to run a QA, QC process on that. Uh, but often, if one of the trades is using more traditional means and methods, then the output, the fabrication deliverable, should be something that's consumable by them, that's, that's human-readable. And so the real efficiency of this is it is a centralized data set that describes the project. And then from that, in real time, you can extract the information you need in the format that's needed to deliver that, that piece of the project. Dynamics 365 is helping businesses of all sizes unify their data and create a digital-first culture. With next-generation ERP and CRM business applications, employees at every level can reason over data, predict trends, and make proactive, more informed decisions. Request a live demo of Dynamics 365 today by following the link in the episode description. Um, is using these different kinds of tools and taking a different approach is it in service of you know creativity of design so giving the architects uh you know more tools to create more amazing things or is it about efficiency in terms of actually building the building yes so the tools are in service of design and what i think shop has realized is the more command you have over the tool set that you're using to deliver the project the more freedom we have in terms of creativity of delivering the project as we've designed it. You know, I think one of the, the compliments we get is that when the project is built, it looks exactly like or better than the rendering. And it's not by accident. It's because we are very specific about how we use the tools. And it's a way to uh, demystify a lot of the process that is unknown. Like typically in the creative process, you you know, there's sort of gestures and there's geometry and there's a sort of design intent. And then someone has to figure out how to build that. And there's often disconnects in the solutions of how to create that in the means and methods. And when you're much more specific in capturing means and methods in the design process and representing that in the digital model, um, the outcome is, is much more aligned with the design intent. 
just you talking earlier, it made me think of, you know, the very first time when I was learning to code and I used HTML for the first time. And it was this kind of like penny drop moment of like, oh, this is how they build websites. And within a flash, I was immediately going, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to try that. I'm going to put that there. And I knew so little. And I think sometimes that's the power of using technology for creativity. And and I think that point is missed sometimes by people that don't necessarily understand or have used technology for creative means. This penny drop moment that just opens your mind to being able to do things and create things in almost on a different planet, a different dimension. I mean, well, 3D as opposed to two, right? <laughs> no, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, the 3D is great. I mean, you're, you're working on the project. You're working on the problem, the challenge. You're solving it sort of in real time in, in three dimensions. I mean, architecture is a three-dimensional exercise, right? We're, we're building spaces and experiences. Um, the speed at which you're able to study, uh, it's an incredibly creative endeavor, you know, the challenge in architecture often is the effort in which it takes to create the model. We think common misconception is to model for fabrication, to model the building properly, to create, you know, what's what's known as a digital twin. You know, that's it's just it's so much work. And if something moves, then you've got to go back and remodel everything and it and there's a diminishing returns on, on that type of modeling process. And We've built an infrastructure of these types of processes of coding allows you to automate the stuff that normally someone else would have to do by hand. So you're able to keep things light and gestural, what we call the wireframe model, this sort of intent or the guiding geometry that describes the spatial organization of the building and the form and the mass. And you're able to keep that light, keep that fluid and then automate a lot of the systems on top of that. In a way, you're able to extend the design period by compressing the the output period. In architecture right now, the way it, it sort of works, there's actually very little percent of the time spent on what you're doing and why you're doing it. The initial concept, the sort of exciting part, that the sketches and the and the sort of artistry of it, and then you know this creative exercise. You know, that's sort of glorified, I think, in, in public. The reality is that that's a very small portion of the project. Uh, I mean, architecture is engineering and, and construction feet. So a disproportionate amount of time is spent on how to do it and creating the instructions. And what we found is if you can automate huge parts of the how, the idea is not to keep delivering you know, more buildings faster the same way that we would traditionally do it, but you can actually spend more time on why you're making something, uh, its function, its purpose, and you can hold yourself to a higher standard in terms of performance. You're able to be more creative for longer uh, when you can automate the sort of back end of production. What is the technology that allows you to be able to spend more time on the why as opposed to the how? The issue in architecture, buildings take a really long time and there are a lot of parts and they're really big. It's hard. Building is hard. And there's so many parameters and performance criteria that buildings have to meet. It's complex and it's many systems all coming together. And the traditional approach is you have to lock something down and then apply systems logic to it and then understand how you're going to build it. And just by its nature, a good building, maybe an average life cycle is five years to make that. It's a lot of decisions. The 
only way it can work in the traditional process is by freezing it at points and then moving on. You have to make design decisions early. And the idea towards the end of a project of changing some big fundamental design move is just it's impossible. It, it, there's too much. The approach that we take is, again, leveraging what technology does, what scripting does, um, to write codes that automate building technology. So we'll create a line. And on one line here, one line there, and then where something hits those two lines, it creates two points and it draws a line between them. And you create these relationships and rules. Parametric modeling, I think, is, is pretty well known now in architecture, right? There's tools for creating parametric shapes and designs to run operations. But what we're able to do is automate a lot more of the building systems, a lot more complexity on top of our lightweight models that describe the design and the composition. And the tools and you know the processing power of these now are able to instantiate huge amounts of data. So the big difference here is you design and you put in as much information as is known at that time based on whomever you're working with. So as engineers start providing input, if the span is this long, then the profile needs to be this deep. You need this big of a member. And if it gets bigger, then it needs to get deeper. So you start learning the rules as you're working on the problem. You start developing new rules and then a manufacturer will come and say, well, if it gets bigger than this, I can't fit it on a sheet anymore. So we can build these triggers into our models to say, if it exceeds this parameter, notify us or split into two pieces. Or we can start designing the engineered systems and implementing them in real time on our design model. So we're able to continuously adjust the design while uh, accounting for the evolving systems that are going on top of that. I think what it also makes me think of when you're talking there is it sounds like there you get more freedom because instead of worrying about, you know, I'm, I've come up with this idea that's maybe unconventional or different or difficult, you get caught up already going, oh God, that's going to be an absolute nightmare to translate into all these pages and pages. Whereas if you have tools in the middle that let that process, uh, you know, either be easier or quicker or less cumbersome, it sounds like that bit that you're saying we sort of glorify Actually, you do get to live it out a bit more. Yeah, and it's always a shame when you start to see tools dictate what you're making. And often that's how you're making it. Like, as you just said, oh, that would be too difficult or, you know, that just looks expensive. And I think we see the tools as an opportunity. Wait a minute, let's break this down into its parts and components. I think we do think of our buildings as in its constituent parts and components and assemblies. We've always, you know, and that I think comes from the aerospace automotive infatuation and understanding that buildings are products and they're pieces that are assembled. So we've always looked towards manufacturing. And if you understand the building as its pieces and parts, those can be manufactured and assembled and you get a much higher quality product, but you get what you're designing. So when someone looks at something and is like, that looks complex, that means it's expensive. It's like, wait a minute, let's talk about how it's made. And when you think about the, the sort of machining process, it, when you understand the parts of your building, you know, every material has its respective process. Everything has its associated property. The machine, like a water jet, doesn't care whether it cuts 10,000 of the same part or 10,000 slightly different parts. It's machine code and it doesn't take any longer. It introduces new logistics challenges in terms of tracking different parts. But the reality is, you know, something that might look complex formally when you look at how it's made, often geometrically can be rationalized with off-the-shelf, either stock good or sheet good. And if you understand the process 
of how it's made, whether this is the drawing that an individual person needs to cut that or it's going directly to a machine. If you understand that trail of the initial creative vision to its constituent parts, trace that through its process, then no one part is complex. And what you'll often find is that if you leverage the technology, that collective process, all of a sudden you can build the complex thing for exactly the same thing that you would have built the more traditional uh, design and you get more architecture for the same amount if you can control the process or if you can design in a way that facilitates the process. This isn't a um, isolated exercise by any means. We create a design to communicate to many others, to engineer, to understand, to analyze, and to build. And the design is only as feasible as you're able to communicate it to that network of people and collaborate. And what we found is, you know, the way we like to work is a more agile approach where design inputs can remain fluid. We can still make design moves and those systems can respond and adapt to the new design. When you're talking about having technology as the sort of central foundation um, of the project, you're talking about this, you know, this one source of data, this one source of information. How does that change in terms of collaboration throughout the process of the build? You know, how you work with people on site, how you work with clients from the beginning of the project with design all the way through. Yeah. I mean, again, technology, I guess, is a sort of a loaded thing, right? I mean, in this case, we're talking about the three-dimensional model, that is our source of design. That's where we go in to form space to describe a built environment. It's only as good in terms of collaboration as people can access it. So a client can't spin the models that we make around. You know, you can't expect them to download software and move themselves through the project. They can't understand it that way. So traditionally, you've had to create deliverables that are human readable, but also like layperson readable. You know, a plan doesn't necessarily mean anything to a client. There's a lot of clutter on it. It's two-dimensional. We don't see the world in two dimensions. Um, So there's not only is it labor intensive to create additional deliverables, they may not be and often aren't the most communicative way to invite someone into your design. You know, things like virtual reality, a client can walk through the project. It's a way, it gives them access to our CAD. And we say CAD because that's our computer-aided design. But for them, it's the project. And for us, we're able to create options in real time in 3D, and you can flip them through in real time as they walk and move through the space. They feel it, and it's immediately accessible. Decisions are made exponentially faster when people have access to the design. It's changed the dynamic of conversation. It's much more real time and there are no unwanted surprises. It's immediate. And, you know, VR is the communication between clients and collaborators. It enables that, right? Everyone is in the project in real time. I mean, every project we do, that's it. The reviews happen in, in virtual reality. When everyone's remote, you're, you're able to actually meet in VR and have a design discussion within the project. The future of this, it's a little nascent right now, but augmented reality, you know, things like, you know, tech like the HoloLens, where you're walking through a site in real time and commenting on it, seeing the overlay of instruction of where something goes. I mean, it's interesting. We create these drawing sets that have hundreds of instructions, like one sheet will have, you know, hundreds of thousands of annotations and dimensions, and this goes here. But when someone's on site, they are like, they're holding a bracket 
and they want to know where that bracket goes. Like we don't multi-process and this needs to go somewhere. Where does it go? And if, you know, we just spoke about logistics. If that thing has a code and you know what that piece is, augmented reality will show you exactly where that piece goes and you go and put that down and then there's the next piece. And it's much more clear. You don't see thousands of dimension strings everywhere. You get the information you need in real time, specifically what you need at that time. And then that tech is, you know, AR is, is building quickly. And that will complete the circle of this sort of design to delivery process. So let's talk about some of the, the recent projects that you guys have been working on, some really exciting builds. You know, I know about the, the Barclays Center and the Botswana Innovation Hub. I wonder if you could walk us through what this looked like from this ideation conceptual stage through to construction. Yeah, and Barclays, we started that project in 2009 and a project for that size, I think, we finished in 2012. So for a three-year run for a project like that, of that magnitude, is unprecedented. It's very tight time frame, very high stakes. And it was our largest prototype of process, I would say. And you don't have Barclays without the DNA of the firm. The first project of the firm was uh, this PS1 installation pavilion Dunescape. It's basically a, a digital form, you know, and the, and the creative process in that was meant to be all the ergonomic gestures that people take on, whether they're relaxing, lounging, sitting, standing, dancing. Uh, And then this form was a sweeping morph of those different conditions. And the project was not about the form. It was about how to build it on almost no budget. And the way that you do that is you cut it into finite slices and you print those out one-to-one and you overlay the sticks over that and then you do the next one and the next one and the next one. So there is no drawing instructions. There is no deliverable. There is only one-to-one templates directly from the three-dimensional form. That is a DNA project. And from that, that mentality, Barclays is essentially that scaled up. Essentially, every piece and part was modeled precisely for fabrication. And, and the takeaway there is you can have... Uh, mixed materials, you can have uh, more complexity in shape, but if you can build it digitally, the pieces come out as modeled and everything fits together. It's self-jigging, you can't put it together incorrectly, and you're no longer creating these huge sets of plans and sections and elevations. You're creating assembly drawings, the, the IKEA instruction kit. And you know, between PS1, so PS1's 2000, Barclays is 2000, 9, 2010. So it basically took a decade of that mentality to scale up in terms of the technology and the process where we're now, it's the same idea. You model it and you use that model to generate the pieces and parts of that project. What we're able to do as we, as the tools become obviously more advanced, as we're able to build in more scripting logic and automation, we're able to control many materials, many parts and components where you're now dealing with hundreds of thousands of parts. And we do that through templating processes. So, you know, you you essentially, how do you manage complexity? Well, this panel is a little bit different than the one next to it, which is a little bit different than the one next to that. But if you build a template that is flexible and you can sort of wiggle it around and you embed all the instructions for every part of that template in that, then you essentially copy and paste it to the next location and all the pieces and parts all adjust. Um, I think Barclays happened organically and it happened sort of so fast that we ended up road mapping what is now our sort of understanding and our sort of vision of, of how this industry could work 
you know, going into it, we're going to design the arena. <laughs> is, is it? Uh, there's no time to question it. So as you begin designing, as we do, you start with large gestures. How does it relate to the, the sort of civic conditions? How do you create a public plaza? And you, you're sort of pushing and pulling form in, in a very organic way, uh, very fluid and very iterative. And out of necessity, we need to account for how much area of material are we using. Like we have to start budgeting the project from the initial proverbial pen down. And every design iteration of that project had an associated metric to it. So we created systems that would report how much surface area of facade are we creating when we're studying these forms. And in parallel, we're starting to look at more fine-grained design details. You know, is it a surface? Is it metal? Is it panelized? And as soon as it became panelized, we were developing systems to automate the placement of those panels, the instantiation of those panels. And from the early designs, we had an unrolled solution. We knew exactly how many panels, we knew how much area that would take. So we could hold ourselves to very specific budgets and requirements. And all of this, as we move through it, we're essentially there creating a design for manufacturing and assembly roadmap. And without doing this deliberately, the design model morphed and evolved into the fabrication model. There was never a moment where, okay, design is done. Let's create a new model that specifically addresses how to build this thing. You know, Barclays was a roadmap of defining what digital infrastructure you need to successfully execute a project, like a model-based delivery project. And then Botswana was doing that remotely from our desks in New York, kind of taking everything we learned there, encapsulating it and doing it now in a cloud-based platform where all the information is there in real time from our desks in New York to, you know, Gaborone, Botswana, the complexity of that project, you know, essentially that is a true design for manufacturing and assembly process. In Barclays, we created, there were automated, you know, cut files for certain parts of it, a lot of CNC, and then there were some, you know, manual fabrication tickets made for the Botswana project. It was truly model-based delivery. They had the right equipment. We understood and mapped the machines they had, the processes they were able to to deliver, and we essentially just uploaded packets of solid models that went directly to the machine, were cut and coded, and produced basically one assembly drawing per unit, and send that information to a fabricator in Cape Town, South Africa, to manufacture these facade units, uh, 3,000 units. They're essentially a little IKEA set that they package, subassemble, and send over to the project, and they use the parking garage in the project as an impromptu assembly plant and assembled these kits of parts and installed them on the building to a very high precision. So the process defined in Barclays was then refined and um, taken to another level with Botswana. You spoke about this idea of buildings are just made up of lots of parts and pieces, right? As opposed to thinking about a project as a whole. And of course, you have to do both as an architect, right? You have to be able to conceptualize a whole as well as understand all of these parts and pieces. But in terms of the parts and pieces, how do you track them all, you know, from the point of design, but then across the entire process of construction to make sure that it does come out better than the render? So that was the big realization, I think, in Barclays, is that, you know, we're, we're creating these agile wireframe systems that are hosting huge amounts of eventually fabrication data on top of them, right, as, as we're receiving them. So every mega panel, for example, has 100 to 200 parts on it. 
we, we didn't realize it at the time, but looking back, understand geometry actually isn't the hard part. Creating pieces and parts that negotiate form, whether it's spliny or curvy or rectilinear, geometry rationalization is not the real challenge. That can be created in these sort of live parametric systems. But what you're doing now is creating hundreds of thousands. Uh, in the case of Botswana, it's, it's millions of parts. And those each move through their process of fabrication, assembly, documentation, fabrication, assembly. And logistics is actually the kind of next frontier for this. That's now a new criteria you have to build into the model. Not only is it describing geometry and creating the files you know, to cut, but you're embedding nomenclature, you're embedding parameters and logic that then help you facilitate the flow through you know, a factory floor uh, to subassembly, to the on-site shipment, to install. And what we started doing was we have all these models, we, you know, these complex data sets, everything is named uniquely. The fabricator calls them something. We're tracking their status and progress. And you're able to now create data visualization overlays. The model itself now becomes a logistics tool to monitor progress issues and resolution of problems in real time. So the logistics themselves, that actually becomes the exciting part. And the model is, again, the tool that is best served for coordinating that. Tell me about some of the exciting new technologies you're using that are kind of shaking up the way you do architecture. Yeah, yeah. you know, I think we're deeply embedded in probably every field of tech. Uh, what we found in our work is the centralized data set, the three-dimensional description of the project as a central source. That is how we run our projects. All of the technology that we leverage on top of that is in service of communicating that design in real time efficiently. We love virtual reality because it's a way to evaluate, to go inside of the design, to collaborate in real time around an active design model, around the, the project itself, to evaluate, to make decisions, comment. And all of these things are avoiding derivative outputs. So the project proper lives in three dimensions in a single environment in the computer. It lives digitally. The ability to inhabit the project, to move around it, to sort of walk through it in design iteration allows us to make decisions quickly, to share that with clients, have them make decisions quickly. It expedites the sort of turnaround time of production, creating deliverables to communicate the project to then bring back into the design space. It's all happening in real time in the same space. So virtual reality is a way of understanding, coordinating, designing the project. You know, before it's built, it removes the drawing sets from the design process. And augmented reality becomes the real-time overlay and instruction on site or in the physical space. So we're exploring more efficient ways of communicating and delivering information. The more direct we can pull that from the sort of design source, the better. The more efficient it is, the more real-time, you know, you have no chance of out-of-date. If the information is coming out of that model, it is current. It is accurate. The second you create a drawing or a rendering or an image and the project changes, you're at risk of building the wrong thing or the wrong version of the thing. Um we found ourselves in sort of weird places in tech, you know, creating mobile applications so that we can take the design model to site so that we can overlay data of construction process, you know, on top of those models. Can we hold up a tablet 
on site to understand what should be built to understand the the conditions as an augmented overlay. There's no tool that that does that. So you know, back to the point before about the you know the deliverables and how we communicate the design to different trades. All of those deliverables are embedded in the model. You know, there's a version of this where everything is happening in real time from the model. We think uh, actually. We believe that's inevitable. It's just when is the industry going to, to shift to that? There's a lot of behavior to shift, and there's a long way to get there. If the project is defined and all its pieces and parts are defined in the digital model, the instructions for making it can be extracted from that model. John, thank you so much for sharing so much about the amazingly intriguing world of architecture and all about your guys' innovative process to making it better. Thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can find out more about John's work and indeed some of the broader themes we discussed today in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please do take a few moments to rate and review the podcast. It really helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to hit subscribe and tune in next time to continue our conversation about innovation, resilience and our capacity to succeed. Dynamics 365 delivers next-generation ERP and CRM business applications, helping employees at every level reason over data, predict trends, and make proactive, more informed decisions. Request a live demo of Dynamics 365 today by following the link in the episode description.